0: Hi, my name is Jake. Uh, I'm the creator of Bright Sun Films. Uh, I've been doing it for quite a while now. Um, and uh, this is my new documentary called Closed for Storm. It's uh, it's my theatrical, I guess not theatrical, but it's my uh, directorial debut. Um, and I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to talking to you about it.
1: Uh, hey, what's up? My name is John Shaw. Uh, I'm the producer of "Close for Storm and I'm also a uh, freelance video producer. And uh, yeah, I'm excited to be here and talking about "Close for Storm. <laughs> If I would be in the car with
2: someone else and we're driving past it, I would be cranking my head around and like looking at what rides are going. Just remembering all the fun. I'll be back soon.
1: Unless the hurricane comes and destroys everything. Ha ha ha.
2: Hurricane Katrina is now designated a Category 5 hurricane. It was a feeling of like terror.
1: Not only seeing images of the park flooding, but the neighborhood
3: that I live in and um, everywhere, like my entire life being flooded. Physically, if you walked the park itself outside, it really didn't look that bad. It's when you went into the actual facilities that you saw the level and the extent of the damage where you see Six Flags coming in and, and taking rides out.
2: When Six Flags decided just to take insurance money or whatever they did.
4: The magnitude of uh, that loss and that uh, the, the damage that was done.
2: A brand new theme park would be $200 million. It's devastating, I mean, to think that the city let that park get like that over all these years.
3: That is the trailer for the soon-to-be-released documentary, Closed for Storm, and this is Factual America. Factual America is produced by Alamo Pictures, a production company specializing in documentaries, television, and shorts about the USA for an international audience. I'm your host, Matthew Sherwood, and every week we look at America through the lens of documentary filmmaking by interviewing filmmakers and experts on the American experience. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Alamo Pictures to be the first to hear about new productions, to find out where you can see our films, and to connect with our team. What is it about old, abandoned buildings that can be so compelling and alluring? We find out today as we welcome filmmakers Jake Williams and John Shaw to the podcast. Their film, Closed for Storm, is about a theme park left for ruin in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina 15 years ago. Closed for Storm shows Six Flags New Orleans in its glory days and current state of abject dereliction. Along the way, the film also captures the broken dreams and fleeting aspirations of a community still looking for hope. We find Jake and John in the eye of a different kind of storm here in the summer of 2020, as they join us from their homes in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, and Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Jake Williams and John Shaw, welcome to Factual America. It's good to have you guys uh, finally get you guys on the on the program. Um, Jake, uh, you're in Canada, right?
0: Yeah, just outside of uh, the city of Toronto. Yeah.
3: Yeah, and how are things there? Are they a little different? Uh, than they are uh, south of the border.
0: Arguably yeah. better than the United States currently, but that's a pretty low bar to, to cross, so we're doing good.
3: Yeah, yeah. So, and and uh, John, you're in uh,
1: Louisiana and Baton Rouge, is that right? Yes, I am. Uh, things are probably a little bit better in Canada than for <laughs> us down here. Um, you know, we, we're thankfully not leading the charts in cases right now, but we're not doing great, so
3: but you you actually i was i was in Texas in March, and I remember hearing things out of uh out of your way uh, it wasn't looking great back then but if things settled down at all
1: um it wasn't looking great back then, and it's probably not much better i mean <laughs> we uh relaxed our our rules quite a bit in may because people the governor was under a lot of pressure uh yeah. we live in a predominantly red state, and people are you know very anxious to get business back to normal. And unfortunately we're kind of facing the consequences of opening up too early and we're kind of slowly starting to backtrack it.
4: Um,
1: In fact, uh, vice president Pence is in Baton Rouge like right this moment uh, talking to the governor and stuff, trying to, you know, figure out exactly what's going on. So I don't know if that's a good sign or a bad sign.
3: (laughs) (laughs) These days, I don't know. I have I no idea. It's just your guess as good as mine. I think yep, when it comes exactly. to that sort of stuff. Hey, well, we could. Uh, well, we if we want, we can talk about anything. But uh, we can talk about the coronavirus for the next uh, hour or so. But uh, <laughs> the reason you're here, and uh, the thing I want to talk about is um, your film, uh, "Closed for Storm." Now, John, um, what's the status now? Where, where can we see this film anywhere yet? And uh, when is it going to be released if it hasn't been?
1: Um, no, it's currently not released. Um, we are kind of, our, our plans kind of got thrown for a loop, uh, with the, you know, coronavirus as most people's entire 2020 plans have been. Um, so we finished the film back at the start of this year and, you know, had an entire plan of festival release, yeah. you know, just dis- finding distribution and stuff like that. And all that kind of came to a screeching halt. And so, um, we are exploring a lot of different routes right now and, You know, we really want to be able to have as many people be able to see it as possible. And uh, thankfully, we do have uh, Jake's channel and the Bright Sun Films channel, which has a pretty uh, big network of people. But we really, really were hoping for a festival release. And I think even though a lot of the festivals have been canceled, I think there is still going to be a way that we can do it. And it might not be the way we think we're talking to the New Orleans Film Festival about some options and they're really interested in uh, figuring out a way to get people to see it, you know, mm-hmm. as. Yeah.
3: yeah, no, I, I think I, I think we can probably, uh, it would be good to discuss even more about that later. I mean, mm-hmm. we have a lot of filmmakers on this program and, and that's, Everybody's everyone's going got it. through it. Everyone's going through it, and everyone's got a different uh, view on how it's all going to play out, especially how the festivals will or will not fit into all this yeah. going forward. Um, but let's let's focus on the film r- at, for now. And uh, Jake, um, since no, well, except for me, I may be the one person, probably the only person in Europe, maybe who's seen this. I don't know. Um, <laughs> yeah, probably, Jake, yeah. so. Uh, and thank you for the for the screener link i yeah. appreciate it um check maybe you can give us a synopsis of the film
0: yeah uh i mean basically there is a an abandoned uh pretty mainstream american theme park uh smack dab in the middle of uh new orleans and uh, it's always been a point of uh interest for many people a lot of people who enjoy uh, going to abandoned places they that's like their bucket list place to go um and it's become this kind of weird cultural icon as sort of a, a lasting monument of Katrina, if you will. Uh, so we set out to sort of tell the story of that uh, property the, from the beginning, middle, and then to the uh, very tumultuous, rather unknown future of the property. Um, and I think we, we do a pretty good job exploring that throughout the entire film.
3: And this is, uh, well, it was, an is- it was first called Jazzland, then it became Six Flags New Orleans. Right. Had a relatively short life, didn't it? It was just...
0: Yeah. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, John. I th- believe it opened in the year 2000, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, from 2000 to 2005, yeah. only opened for five years, more or less, and it closed uh, every and... season. So it wasn't open for very long.
1: And really, the 2005 season, it had just opened because Katrina was in August of 2005, and so it had mm, just opened true, yeah. for their August season. Uh, you know, they they started like kind of in the summer, and so like they were just kicking off their uh, August season. And uh, so, i think it was really only like four and a half years, and only oh. I think two and a half under Six Flags
3: mm. brand. Sounds about so, right. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So, so your film very and, and so. Hour long, very um, great footage that you've got. Um, Thank you. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's not you have the ubiquitous tr- drone shots, but they're used <laughs> extremely well. Um, and I think some amazing uh, archival stuff um, mm-hmm. that made me feel old because I never, I didn't think two thousand <laughs> would look so dated, but it, it, it <laughs> looks pretty, right. pretty old. Um, but uh, John, I mean, so are you from? Are you from the area originally? Yeah, I.
1: Grew up in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, my entire life, mm. and uh, it's a relatively small city, and so New Orleans is kind of the big city. Yeah. And so,
3: you know, I grew up between both cities my entire life. So, what did so? Jazzland Six Flags opens up in 2000. What did it mean for for New Orleans in the in the region?
1: Yeah, when it opened, I mean, I was I was relatively young, but I still remember there being the excitement of there being a theme park, because I think at at some point in the film, we show a map of the radius of every theme park in the United States. And there was this massive gaping hole in the deep South where if you lived in Louisiana, it was either you drove, you know, eight or 10 hours to Disney or you drove six hours to uh, Texas. And so I just remember being so excited that we would finally have a theme park that we could go to and and you know there was relatively small little you know fairs and stuff but it was really exciting and I I even remember uh, I was six when the park actually opened the first time and I just remember I still remember to this day the excitement of seeing all the commercials and
3: you know all that. I mean, you you write about that map, and I was noting that mm-hmm. I had been to just about all those theme parks. Yeah, uh, but but New Orleans didn't have one when I was when I was exactly. Born. Yeah, it was um, a great great spot. Uh, so I, I think this would be, if it's okay, you've you've uh, shared some clips with us, and I want to share those with our, our listeners. And for those who are on YouTube, you get to you get to see it as well. Um, the first clip I think would be good is it's all about the opening, and then. Um, then we get a little bit of how uh, it it quickly uh, that even, even before the big event happens, uh, the the uh, theme park was fu- running into little little trouble. Do you want to set that up?
1: Yeah. So the first clip, we we had a you know wide variety of archival stuff, but you know pretty quickly we jump into you know th- things started off really really well and things were really exciting and there was a lot of hope for the park, but ultimately. Pretty much immediately, it was financially unsuccessful,
0: and so and that it, uh, let me chime in too, uh, John. It, one of the things that a lot of people don't understand, we don't really touch on touch upon in the film, just because there's a lot of moving parts in, in the corporations. But yeah, um, Ogden Entertainment, which was the corporation that was made specifically to run uh, to spearhead their their new park division um, with the new Jazzland Park. Uh, They were putting a lot on this. Uh, Jazzland was a a costly endeavor by a local businessman and and Ogden Entertainment, a brand new corporation made just for this, was created just so they can operate Mm -hmm. this park. So... Um, not only was it launching a new local major theme park, it was launching a brand new corporation that was supposed to be the next big Universal Studios and Disney and Six Flags. So that's interesting. Yeah, was, there was a lot. Of, there was a lot riding on this park, and there was a lot of enthusiasm with these executives.
1: It was a big gamble, too. Yeah. It was a very big gamble. You know, trying to to start essentially this new theme park mm-hmm. empire is what their I guess their plan was.
3: And they were local businessmen, right? Who were had this vision for um, the next university. Yeah, yeah, a, a yeah. local
0: businessman um who uh who had done a lot of development in New Orleans and yeah. it was his idea to to build a, a massive theme park in uh in somewhere in New Orleans because that was that was in their original business plan, as John was saying, the the map of the gaping hole of no theme yeah. parks in the Louisiana area.
3: Okay. almost well, so literally a gap analysis showing there was this I know. gap yeah. in,
0: the, in the market.
3: Well, let's, let's watch that clip or listen to it, and uh, we'll be right back after that.
0: Jazzland was already being publicized as America's newest major theme park, and in many respects, it was. The park had several theme sections, all originating from a central main street made to look like the famous French Quarter. Circling around a main lake in the middle would be Cajun Country, Mardi Gras, Kids' Carnival, and most popular, a land themed off a vintage amusement park in New Orleans, Pontchartrain Beach. These lands were comprised of many different flat rides, flume rides, a simulator, two launch towers, an eye-catching sky coaster, and four roller coasters. The main attraction, though, was undoubtedly the Mega Zeph a wooden coaster built on a steel frame, one which was inspired by the Zephyr from New Orleans' very own Pontchartrain Beach.
3: Of course, the Mega Zephyr was the signature uh, wooden coaster that we had uh, at at the facility. I believe, from memory serves, it was 110 feet tall at at the peak of the ride, and it was just, it was a great experience.
2: I think everybody reacted very positively. First of all, they couldn't believe that we had an amusement park out there. I think families were thrilled with it. And as I said, the size of the park was great. Kids could could play, you could walk around. It wasn't a big Disney that you were worn out at the end of the day. It was, um, I think it was very well received by the the community and especially by families.
0: If a guest did not necessarily go looking for the, the stories in the newspaper or on
3: television or radio that the park was in bankruptcy, they probably would not have necessarily known that we were after the uh, the second year, and
0: really beginning in the 2002 season, uh, Jazzland did indeed have some financial troubles, and it declared bankruptcy at the end of that season.
3: So yeah, I think that's a that's a great great clip there with the uh, got some of the archival uh, footage and how and all the the hopes that uh, sort of Greater New Orleans had <laughs> about about this opening of the um, of the theme park. Um, Jake, I mean, what what happened next? I mean, they, there's an allusion there to the um, the bankruptcy or financial problems, but things were were starting to look up, weren't they?
0: Yeah, it's it's kind of sad because Jazzland was this uh, sort of home built theme park, if you want to say it wasn't owned by a Six Flags or a Disney or anything like that. So it was yeah. sort of an independent park. Um, but the facts were it just it wasn't working out. Uh, they weren't seeing the attendance, and they were millions of dollars in liabilities, and uh, they had to declare bankruptcy at, at one point or another, and uh, their only lifeline really was Six Flags, who stepped in and bought the park and uh, turned it into something that they wanted to do. So really, Jazzland only lasted for a couple of years, and uh, it was quickly turned into the what many th- – thought was the corporate theme park or the, the corporate side of, of everything that uh, that sort of stepped in and and uh, swayed all the local politicians and sort of made it to what they wanted.
3: I mean, that's just because a lot of our listeners may not know. I, I do just because I grew up in Texas, but mm. Six Flags is a big uh, corporate or was at least. I don't know where they, if they <laughs> still exist even, um, uh, Jake, but they uh, big chain of uh, massive Big large theme parks in the, in the yeah United
0: Six states. Six Flags, if I'm not mistaken, is the second largest theme park operator uh, potentially in the world, definitely in the United States. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've uh, they've operated theme parks in the United States for a long time. Uh, they have theme parks all across the states. Um, and even now they're expanding in China, and I, I believe they had mm-hmm. a European division at one point. Uh, prior to the Bankruptcy. They went through later on after Katrina. So they were a, a big company. They had a lot of capital, and when they bought Jazzland, they were going through one of their expansions. When they were just okay. buying up all these parks across okay. the country and world, uh, and making and branding them into a Six Flags park. Okay. So things
3: are starting to look uh, look up. Six Flags is on the case. Uh, investing, put in new some new roller coasters. Yeah, everyone keeps talking. I think this gets brought up several times in the film. The water park is coming. Once yeah. you get the water park, <laughs> everything's fine. It's hot in
0: Louisiana. Yeah, it, it <laughs> it's is very
3: hot. <laughs> <laughs> um uh, but John, and since you live there locally, um, then we had uh Hurricane Katrina. So Yes, we did. It's almost fifteen years to the day. We're about mm-hmm. a month away from the anniversary. Mm-hmm. Um what was it like to live through that? What do you remember?
1: Um so I was going into sixth grade when it happened. And I remember, you know, I was still pretty young. And so when you're that age, you don't exactly know what's going on. But I, it's still such a traumatic memory and such a vivid memory that I, you know, remember it. And so, you know, I just remember the big, you know, small things to start. You know, we were we were used to hurricanes here and essentially for us in baton rouge it felt like another hurricane like it just felt like a bad hurricane we have one every two or three years there's some trees down flooding powers out you know so we went through that and it was kind of like all right let's start picking up the pieces and uh my dad had a solar generator at the time and so we had all my whole family kind of gathered in the living room and we had my grandparents who lived in new orleans at the time and um a couple other people that were coming to stay at our house which is kind of like a usual thing when, when the a hurricane hits, everyone kind of piles into the person's house who has a generator and air conditioning and stuff. And so I just remember turning on, we turned on the TV for like an hour or two every night because that's all the, you know, g- generator power we had. And we were all sitting around this TV and started because initially, you know, there was no social media, there was no very rough internet coverage mm-hmm. and there wasn't a lot of information coming out. And then I just remember slowly things started to turn and it was like, okay, wait, you know, New Orleans is taking a lot of water. And then I just remember, you know, the whole mood shifted, especially with my parents. And I didn't quite, you know, grasp the severity of the situation, but Mm. I just remember, um, watching the news every night and, you know, thinking, how like, I just remember this thought of like, there's just no way the city, like it, you know, everyone's just gonna have to move out and they're gonna have to bulldoze the whole city because those images and seeing that it's just like, there's no way anyone could come back from this. And it was just that feeling for days and days.
3: Yeah. I mean, those images will, I don't think any of us will forget any of those images oh, no. coming out, but the, the thing, the one image I don't recall seeing, which you've got a lot of in the film, um, uh, Jake, is certainly the park under, well, not literally underwater, but it's it's yeah. certainly standing in water. Um, and then that takes us to where we are today, I think, Jake. I mean, what is, um, I mean, so what's happened, maybe you can bring us up to, so we're kind of showing the timeline here, just very right. traditional narrative, but uh, Hurricane Katrina happens, and then that's pretty much it for the park. And that brings us to the current day, doesn't it?
0: Yeah. Uh when Katrina was happening, nobody except the park employees, their minds weren't really on what the theme park was doing during that <laughs> yeah. time. They had bigger fish to fry, obviously. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so once the, the helicopter images started coming out of the theme park underwater, it was, uh, it was staggering. And um, obviously, with that much salt water uh, standing still about seven feet uh, surrounding the park for weeks on end, slowly draining. Uh, it's going to cause serious damage, and um, the the rides. I, there's a whole scandal through the whole thing. We sort of touched on yeah, that in the movie, yeah. but uh, uh, to cut it short, Six Flags had uh, inevitably decided that they didn't want to own the park anymore. They were going through their own financial difficulties, so uh, they just said, "You know what? Fine, we'll we'll take whatever's valuable and leave." And that's what exactly what they did. They grabbed some roller coasters, literally. Um, and left and they just abandoned the property uh, The city bought it off them sort of uh, and now it's the city's problem. And it's been like that since 2005 so now we have this uh, Abandoned theme park with most of the stuff still inside uh, The water line still from Katrina mm. present everywhere inside the park. That's just stuck in time and uh, and I, like I mentioned earlier of a, a, a monument of mm. Katrina one of the lasting scars of, yeah. uh, of New Orleans really. Uh, I think that takes us
3: to a, a, a second clip because what it is is a little teaser for our uh, listeners and and those who watch uh, uh, of of gives a little uh, little view of what the park kind of looks like today. Uh, and there's a woman who plays a relatively prominent role in this film who leads us through. Mm-hmm. What's and she who's she? And maybe you can set up this us. clip for us, Jake. Yeah, that's Jake. Uh, yeah, her, that name's uh, Patricia,
0: her name's Patricia, and uh, she owns a local laser tag uh, facility. Yeah, comes and, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um comes out. Uh, because she had a laser tag facility, she had plenty of uh, younger employees. So she would always get group discounts going to six flags and she would always take them out uh, on the weekends and every once in a while. So she, she was a big, she was already in themed entertainment, if you will. Um, so she was already quite interested in the, in jazz when it came through. So she was a, uh, she frequented the park a lot. You know, they all had annual passes and such. So, um, I think she was especially devastated, uh, particularly in the clip that you're about to see when yeah. she's actually walking inside the park for the first time yeah. since Katrina. So it's, uh, it's quite an emotional moment for her, yeah. I think.
3: All right, well, without further ado, let's, uh, let's go see that clip.
2: This was the main street. All the gift shops were along here and were air-conditioned, which was very nice in the summer. This is heartbreaking to see. As the graffiti says, this could have been beautiful. And it was very beautiful. Very sad now. We would come several times a year had many, many good times out here. So here we are at Megazeth. Obviously, the riders waited in here for Megazeth to come around this way and pull up here. It is obviously very overgrown and Pitiful. Jocko used to live up on the top of the building. He was this big jester guy who would laugh at you and squirt water on you. This is where you lined up the queue line here.
3: One thing that's, uh, well, many things that are striking about the film, but uh, how did you gain access to the park? Are you allowed to say i mean you have this day scenes a few day scenes, but you've also got quite a night scene and someone's with you but uh right uh, where you're um you know um when people finally see this uh but how did you gain that access? You've got urban explorers in there as well uh was that a challenge
0: yeah we um the urban explorers actually were in there illegally <laughs> I'll, I''ll preface that but um yeah. no we uh I went through a uh, diligent process uh, to go through the city to get the permits. Um, uh, we sort of went the same route as Hollywood movies, you know, uh, Jurassic World and Planet of the Apes were filmed in, inside the park. They, they only utilized the, the parking lot. So we thought um, if we're going to do a documentary, we're obviously going to need permission to go inside so we can have some, some time to actually film the park. Uh, so, like I said, we went we went through the Hollywood route, and we rented out the park as if we were Hollywood, uh, large Hollywood production. So it wasn't uh, it wasn't cheap, but I think it was definitely vital to tell the story. Otherwise, we'd be yeah. doing it very guerrilla style and very illegally, and it probably yeah. wouldn't wouldn't be uh, wouldn't be easy to bring cinema cameras inside the park. And <laughs> do all yeah, that sort of and to
1: touch on that, um, the there's been a few, I mean, in Louisiana, there, there's a heavy interest in this park. And, you know, I, through the years, count, countless and countless people have taken pictures, videos. Um, and so, it's almost every single one of them gets access to the park illegally. I mean, it's not hard to get into, but um, it's very dangerous and they have a lot of security and stuff. And so, you know, I think... Armed this security, is, too. Armed security. <laughs> and... So this is really the first documentary at least that I'm aware of that has gained legal access and has mm-hmm. filmed everything legally whereas a lot of other people you know take the much easier but you know much more uh illegal route of you know breaking and entering
0: yeah mm.
3: okay well I think it's I mean it's well wow, I can't imagine what your people financing this project thought when you told them you had to run <laughs> out of a-
0: that would be me. <laughs> yes.
3: <laughs> well, there you go. You just have to answer to yourself. But, exactly. Uh, um, so, uh, I mean, it's 15 years on, nothing's changed. Uh, we don't want to give away any endings. They're, uh, maybe it's not giving away anything that's <laughs> to say that things are still kind of, yeah. <laughs> still very much up in the air. Um, but uh, there's talk about even demolition. Uh, and then, uh, John, we've got this third clip that uh, we'll, we'll share with uh, listeners. Uh, and it uh, starts off with discussing about New Orleans East. And maybe uh, since you're the local boy, you can give us a little bit of a introduction, what what that's about. Why, you know, maybe for those who of us who are not that familiar with mm-hmm. New Orleans, why what's, what is it about New Orleans East? And then we'll,
1: um, uh, sure, sure. Uh, New Orleans East is is a very different part of New Orleans. It's a very... Uh, suburban, low-income part of New Orleans that is generally in a pretty big flood zone. Um, there's a lot of different neighborhoods that make it up, but for the most part, I'm sure everyone's heard of the Lower Ninth Ward, uh, which, you know, received some of the worst flooding. But for the most part, it's pretty low-income uh, and predominantly... Uh, it's predominantly low-income uh, area of New Orleans. And New Orleans is a very diverse city. Um, But the part of New Orleans East where the park was built, uh, in general, the residents were told, you know, hey, if you buy your property out here, your value is going to go up. Because look at, you know, houses in Orlando around Disney World. You know, it's like that was the plan of you buy your house here, you are going to increase in value. The park's going to turn into a resort. It's going to take I mean, you know, there's so much land out there and it's so cheap. That all these people and so now when you go out there it's almost it's like a ghost town there's the park and then there's these random little neighborhoods where you could tell were built around the same time and i think one of them one in the clip we're driving through one of them and we interview a resident who lives by the park and uh yeah so for the most part it's it's uh it's a very different part of new orleans than you see you know the french quarter
3: and bourbon street and stuff okay and that's um, where the
0: park is located too. I mm-hmm. think it's it's worth mentioning as well.
3: Y- yeah. And I think, I mean, take it back to the guys who are originally developing it. Kudos for them to try to do oh, something. Oh, yeah, it's a great location. Of, yeah. Absolutely. New Orleans, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, well, why don't we do that? We're going to give our listeners uh, a bit of a, a bit of a break. Uh, and while they're having that break, they can uh, listen and or watch. Uh, this, this clip from Closed for Storm. And we'll be back with Factual America in a, in a couple of minutes. You're listening to Factual America. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Alamo Pictures to keep up to date with new releases or upcoming shows. Check out the show notes to learn more about the program, our guests, and the team behind the production. Now back to Factual America
0: the people in New Orleans East are not given credit for the quality of life that they really do have. It's a nice neighborhood. There are great people that live in New Orleans East, but you see comments all the time about crime or trash or something that's always so negative from people that haven't even driven there, that don't know what's there. You know, it's a nice neighborhood and they're wonderful people, but they're having to fight this perception issue City hall employees should never be put in a position where they're making development decisions.
4: That was some of the things that the developers sold us with, saying, "Oh, it's going to be just like you living a block away from Disney World; and your property value will soar." Um, but since Katrina, 2005, it's been sitting, you know, dormant, empty, in ruined since that time. So, how is that going to make a positive effect on your, uh, on your, on your home and your value of your home when you got an eyesore like this? I would think that if this was in downtown New Orleans, it wouldn't take this long for the city to actually do something with it. You know, by being out here in this neighborhood or whatever, you know, I guess they're just taking their time. You know, we're talking 2005, and now we're in 2020. You take a walk up on my deck, and you take a look over the back. And what I remember seeing years ago was a bunch of forested, beautiful. So now you come up here, and of course, with the first 100, 100 200 feet, you see the trees, but then you see a parking lot that's empty with rusted-out lights. And then you see the roller coaster off in the distance that's sitting dormant, and it's just sitting there, or whatever, you know, uh, we just would hope that we'll, the city would do something with it.
3: Welcome back to Factual America. I'm with Jake Williams, director, writer and narrator, and John Shaw, producer of Closed for Storm. Uh, Jake, we've been talking about Jazzland or actually uh, Six Flags New Orleans, the theme park, the <laughs> iconic theme park that lies uh, derelict in there in New Orleans. Yes. And that is the subject of this film. But I mean, like all good documentaries. Uh, what is this film really about? Beyond uh, being a monument to to Katrina's lasting damage?
0: I mean, there, there's a lot of issues I think we touch upon. Um, one before the break, we were just talking about is, is sort of the, the promise of wealth and uh, property value to the people, uh, often the poorest communities in New Orleans East that were uh, that surround the park, where they were promised uh, higher property value, and now they probably, likely have lower property value um, after all said with everything was said and done, um, which is a, a bit of an issue. Um, I think we also touch upon sort of the bureaucracy in the city. We don't really take a side on anything, but we definitely talk to people who claim at least that they have the money to redevelop this property. Right. Uh, but the city won't let them. And instead the city wants to spend taxpayer money to demolish it and put nothing there. So it's, it's an interesting proposal that, uh, these two sides, the private developers and the city has, um, so it's yeah, it's uh it's a bit of an issue. And I think everyone in New Orleans uh and everyone at home I think would likely side with the uh developers, yet it, it's it's sort of unclear as to why the city chooses to to go this way. And I think that's something we we pose as a question rather than an answer, I guess.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I mean I think I guess the point I think you give some figures in there twenty something million to demolish, thirty yeah. something million to get it up and running, and a mm-hmm. new one would cost two hundred and something, you know, million to build. So right. it's uh I guess it's the question of who would run it. But um um I don't know. But as you say, it's a question left it, it's 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 left unanswered, but it is interesting because you got you obviously have these people who are very committed and very you know they mm-hmm. do yes. want to bring bring this back and
0: uh, very much so very dedicated fans to bring the park back um yeah like i said the city is very uh sort of stubborn on the on the whole yeah. thing and they really would prefer just to demolish it and have nothing there which is yeah. uh it's interesting yeah yeah um so
3: let me ask you what is cuz we we actually have, a, a nice uh, phone call a few months ago actually, and it 's taken a while to get you guys on but uh, what is so damn compelling about abandoned amusement <laughs> parks and shopping malls and brands and things like that uh, jay i 'm alluding obviously to bright sun films yeah. I, I feel like i 'm with youtube royalty here um, <laughs> uh, <clears throat> but what is what 's drawn you to these this subject matter because it 's very it 's it's, it's very i find it interesting i mean as I speak as someone who 's got a uh, my wife's got a book at home. Home called photo book called Derelict London. You know, and my nice. my daughter my daughter found out about this. She goes, well, I would like to see something about an abandoned uh, hospital." I'm like, "You're in luck. I know where can go." <laughs> um, you know, so uh, maybe f- fill us in, Jake. How'd you get get to this place?
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, I think for me, I've been trying to to ask myself this question for a while too. It, it's sort of a a weird cultural thing where people are fascinated on this sort of thing. And I think for me, it's the nostalgia and the idea that it's something like a mall or a theme park, uh, which I visit, obviously, you know, <laughs> every every time I can. And it's um, it, it's something of uh, a pleasure and fun and entertainment. And then when you see the complete opposite of that or something that's sort of stuck in an, a different era, a different... Um, state the the vast stark contrast between the two is just so fascinating and for me too it's like how much money is being wasted on something like this right you know um, in the case of Six Flags New Orleans I mean the city owns it but they're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on security every year at least Um, it's a it's It's a a fascinating yeah part of economics as well as how these buildings all across America and the world just become abandoned. Like how does that happen? And so I've, I've sort of taken it upon myself to tell the story and I think we did that with, uh, with this specific film on this specific property.
3: Yeah well I mean just so clue and we'll have links in the in the show notes but uh, You've got a YouTube channel. It's uh, Bright Sun Films, and you've got uh, a few different series: Abandoned, Bankrupt, which I I've thoroughly enjoyed. Um, um, I mean, I would say, I mean, if you don't mind me saying, I think, and this is what, what has struck me is that at your heart, you're like a historian, a business professor, yeah. and a bit of a sociologist, all rolled into one, with a sort of keen eye for innovation, and as well as hubris and maybe arrogance. I mean, same thing. I, I've, I mean, I've been in the corporate world. I've seen this. Mm-hmm. They buy, you buy an innovative company or whatever, and five years later they're closing it down.
0: You know? Right? Yeah, it's fascinating.
3: It, it and why does this? I mean, I did a an MBA dissertation on this. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's um, and and you have it with this one. I mean, Six Flags all gung ho. Put a, who I forget. You, I think you give us the figures. You're really good with giving us uh, looking yeah. at financials. <laughs> I know it's a pre, as someone who's of, of, of this mindset, I really appreciate it. But uh, um, or even your example on one of your you've, you've got, you look at Target Canada. I mean, I was just struck. They, yeah, was, I was just going to bring that up too. Yeah, You, you know, why open 130 stores and then turn right around and say, no, it was a mistake in two or three years later. And yeah. You spend all that money and
0: how the, that money could have been spent otherwise. I, well, let's, let's give a figure to that money too. That yeah. was $5 billion dollars. Yeah, transition. I just, I just did a whole thing on, on Target Canada a yeah. couple of weeks ago too. Um, $5 billion to enter a country with supposedly a business plan w- opening, I, like you said, 135 stores or something like that across the country. But I remember the Target, this is a yeah. billion dollar brand in the United States, yeah. but they didn't, they didn't know what they were doing. Yeah. So two, I think it was two years later, closed everything. Cut their losses five billion dollars down the drain, and they abandoned all their stores in Canada. It's insane. It is. I
3: mean, you'd think, well, maybe ten stores in the, maybe the Toronto right. area or something. Yeah. But but you know, I mean, I, this is not meant to be a business school class or something. But you know, it's it's <laughs> but it but it is compelling because I mean, I find it. It's just that you know, you think about it, well, instead of spending that money, how's you know, how that from a from a um, from society resource standpoint, you know. Yes. You know, I mean, obviously, it created some jobs when they refurbished all those stores and things like that. Uh, and and same and so bring it back to this film. I mean, it's same thing with Six Flags, but still, uh, yeah, okay, Katrina happened, but I think you have a this one of the developers pointed out that it wasn't just uh Six Flags New Orleans they shut down. They shut down. I, I know Astroworld in Houston. Yeah,
0: Astroworld, and they didn't even they didn't even try and sell off anything from that park. They didn't even try and sell the property. What they did was they closed astroworld and then just demolished it (laughs) they didn't do anything with it they they thought it would be more financially viable which it ended up not being by the way Uh, they thought it'd be more financially viable to the company to just shut down the theme park revenue center and just demolish it it's it's just bizarre how six flags thought it was in a weird bankrupt mindset in that time where they thought Let's just close the parks demolish them get rid of them let's mm-hmm. cut them from our balance sheet and you know restructure it's just bizarre yeah I mean I think you could do a whole
3: separate podcast just looking at this whole phenomenon oh yeah <laughs> uh, you know which if you're if you're not scared away we'd love to have you back on um, uh, well you know I'm enthusiastic about this so. <laughs> well I, you and I both now whether how many other people in the world are there I'm, I'm assuming John is too uh, but Absolutely. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um so uh Jake you made reference to this and then um that uh, this is your uh directorial debut at least from a feature length. so is this is, something yes. that you're this is this where your uh, career's heading or at least where Bright Sun Films is heading in terms I'd like, to,
0: yeah I, I mean I'd like to think so I've uh, I've had a an inkling to do a, a feature documentary for a while um, and I guess uh, YouTube has sort of been taking up all my time since then and uh, the the idea of making a, a feature film on Six Flags sort of fell in my lap and then all my friends in Los Angeles, they started pushing me to make it even something bigger and better and, you know, start using these cameras and and bring it to Los Angeles. We'll edit it and do sound mixing and all that. So it it started out as a very small project. I thought I was just going to film it on an A7S and call it a day, but it ended up turning out to be this huge other different thing. And especially for me who uh, I've done stuff on uh, for digital. I've been doing digital stuff and stuff on YouTube. It's been relatively small scale stuff. so transition into something like this was uh, a big step for me but i think i think for my first film we did a pretty good job and i'm quite proud of it and uh, the people who helped me especially john and and nick our post producer uh, everyone did such a great job and um, i'm really proud of it i really am and hopefully this uh, this marks the the next step for Brights and films in the in the future for me
3: well i think i think so i mean you certainly have uh... Even if you just stick specifically with the sort of subject matter we've been discussing in the last five, 10 minutes, I think you've mm-hmm. got plenty of material
0: yeah, to. I'd uh, say, especially yeah. now.
3: Yeah, well, that, yeah well, especially now. Yeah. I mean, John, how'd you get involved with uh, Close for Storm?
1: Um, so I have been a fan of Jake since the beginning. I've watched all of his videos. I, I'm a huge nerd for this kind of stuff, too. <laughs> you know, I just I love abandoned stuff and kind of the, the nostalgia of it kind of like what we were talking about and seeing the difference and you know and so I reached out to him a while back and told him uh hey if you're ever in Louisiana because I'm a uh, freelance video producer and so I you know work with cameras and editing and I kind of like a one-stop shop and so I told him I was like hey if you're ever in Louisiana working on a project let me know and I'd be glad to help and so just so happened that it was perfect that yeah, the perfect project for you <laughs> his first feature documentary was in yeah. louisiana and so uh, i came on board and helped and uh you know ended up securing all those interviews and we you know kind of i i joined the project after they had filmed at the park already so i was not there for the filming in the park um and that happened kind of urgently because there was a news article published that the park was being demolished hmm. back last summer sometime. I think and it was
0: like May of 2019. They yeah. kind, of, they kind yeah. of
1: cycle through the, those news articles. It happens almost, you know, once a year, but it seemed pretty credible. And so they kind of rushed and got everything together and went and did their uh, filming in the park Uh which I would have told them not to because they did it in the middle of June uh, in New Orleans. And so, Bad idea. <laughs> yeah, I wish I wish I'd been involved then and told them, hey, maybe uh, wait, you know, a few months. But it worked out great because then uh, I was able to get involved and uh, we went back a few times and you know filmed the interviews and kind of did a lot of the rest uh, of the film. And um, yeah, it was, I, it was an awesome project and I really really enjoyed being. Part of it, and you know, still being part of it.
3: And and general, what are some of the besides COVID, obviously, but what have been some of the biggest challenges in making this this film?
1: Um, I think I think some of the biggest challenges have been besides COVID, uh, when we were getting inter. First of all, finding people to interview was yeah. tricky because you know there's not a lot of public records about who worked there, who was involved. And so we kind of worked our way back and found as many people as we can. But a lot of people were hesitant to be involved because either they still had affiliations in the theme park world or Six Flags world. And a lot of people, you know, with a documentary, you never know which way a documentary is going to side. And so, uh, you know, despite our best efforts of telling people, hey, we are going to take a pretty neutral stance. You know, Six Flags made some... Uh, mistakes and the city of New Orleans made some mistakes and everybody's kind of made mistakes to get the park to this point. So we're not tossing any blame at anybody in this documentary. But I think a lot of people were concerned about that. And so I think um, that was a a challenge we faced in terms of finding interviews. And then I'm sure the actual filming at the park had its own (laughs) set of challenges, just physical challenges of the heat, the wildlife, the bugs, the, you know,
3: well, well, the oh, cicadas oh, were loud and clear. I can tell yeah. you that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that
1: yeah. There's an entire population of them out there, I'm sure. Believe me, the sound editing <laughs> for the film was not easy because yeah. of the, the cicadas too.
3: <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Middle of June. Hey, yeah. that's what happens down here. Yeah. Uh, and, and speaking of sound, and one thing that I wasn't expecting um, before I um, watched this film, but... Uh, was the uh, orchestral score that you have, mm-hmm. and I was very impressed with that. and I looked it up, and, his, uh,
0: and I saw that you've got Matthew
3: Jordan Leeds on the project. Yes, how did yes. that happen?
0: Um, I've uh, we're, Matthew and I are actually really good friends. Uh, we've been talking for actually. He's done work for me uh, on the YouTube videos in the past. Um, so obviously, when the project when this project came to light, I uh, was obviously going to ask Matt because he's he's the best of the best. Um, yeah, he uh he wrote a absolutely fantastic score and we had it recorded live uh in Budapest actually at all places. I, I noticed that. Um Yeah, and it's uh it sounds fantastic. He did such a great job. He's he's a brilliant guy and he's gonna go places, that's for sure.
3: Yeah, no, I was I was I was very impressed. It was like straight, you know, I was uh, I, it's it's a it's a good film, but I de- wasn't expecting that. It was like I came to, and, it, and it fits so
0: well. Yes, because I know right. he
3: does a lot of different styles. I mean, he's mm-hmm. not just orchestral. Well,
0: but, he uh, actually does a lot of stuff for Disney too. He's yeah. um uh, mm-hmm. a lot of stuff for Disney World specifically. Uh, so I think the Americana aspect, the the theme park feel of the the film, especially in the earlier days when we're when we're discussing it, it uh it really comes alive, I think, and. Um, but not even that. Like the the emotional parts and the dramatic stuff in this yeah. film, it, it re- he really brings it uh, alive, and the the main theme, just every he did such a great job. Yeah. I really can't praise him enough.
3: Yeah, and um, I mean, so you're uh, got the question here is what's next? I mean, I guess it's trying to get this mm-hmm. film released somehow to in, f- in front of as many people as possible, and uh, I yeah. gather those discussions are ongoing. Uh, but what about after this project? What's what's next for you, Jake? Oh man,
0: I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, this is a oh, and this you let project John have <laughs> for for such a first time director. It's um, I think pretty pretty one note for me. I'm I'm tunnel vision on this. But uh, I think afterwards, sky's the limit. I I would love to love to do another film at some point. But um, obviously, like I said, my my focus right now is trying to get the film out. Yeah. and properly distributed in the best way possible. But uh, it's a bit of a task right now. And since we're there
3: at, at this point, maybe um, I mean, John, uh, chime in if you want. I mean, how, is that, uh, how are those discussions going? Are you finding it really hard going? Because I mean, I know people have got, you, you've got a great film. I've got a lot of people with great films and they're, they're, having, they're finding it surprisingly hard given that yeah. all this word we're hearing about there not being any enough content out there.
1: Yeah, it's, it's difficult because, uh, you know, the natural course of like an indie film would be, hey, you have a festival run, yeah. festival release, festival run, get a distributor, distribute, you know, the natural course. But everything is thrown for a loop right now. And all the festivals are trying to decide, hey, do we want to do the festival? Um, is our, you know, what is the uh, federal or state... Lockdown procedures of if we're actually legally allowed to do this festival, and then if if not, you know, are we going to do it digitally? And then how does that work? Uh, where you know, ticketing and th- there's so many things that go into that, ticketing and so and
0: copyright and all that.
1: Yeah, I think I think uh, we're kind of taking it day by day because we really had hoped to premiere it at the New Orleans Film Festival because that felt right for us and. Uh, you know, we knew that there would be a huge audience of people down here that would be interested in it. And, you know, there's already been a lot of uh, support just from people I know that have, you know, driven by the park every day. And Mm -hmm. so I think the New Orleans Film Festival was our natural um, home for the release of this. And I think it still might be. Um, We're really hoping that, that, you know, things can improve here and the film festival can happen some way or another. And so mm-hmm. I think, uh, you know, we're going to try and do as good of a festival run as we can. And we're, we're talking to a few distributors right now um, that seem promising. And so we're hoping that, you know, through these festivals, we can come up with a more concrete plan, at least by the end of the year, that we can have a way for everybody to see this. Uh, and yeah. if not, you know, if things aren't better in the, in the you know, at least United States by then, we're going to have to you know have another discussion but i i have faith that uh you know that things are going to work out cuz like you said there is no shortage of people wanting new content right now and it's all just about uh getting people you know connected with the content creators i mean um do you think there's still a
3: role for, i mean i who knows but do you think is there still a role for the festivals in in all this or is that uh you think that's, that's a good question change?
1: i i think there is um you know i think it might it, after this year it might be different because the whole idea of the festival is not only to debut and screen your film to like an audience but also it's for making connections and there's a lot of physical aspect that goes into uh you know, doing a festival run in terms of, you know, flying out there, having dinner with people, shaking hands, Mm -hmm. you know, getting caught. Like there's a lot that goes into a festival that's not just, hey, here's a bunch of people that can watch my film. Because if we wanted that, we could just put it on YouTube and we'd have, you know, a big audience. And so I think think it's going to have to change. I think that there's every festival right now is going through that and they're trying to figure out what's the best way to do things. And the ones who don't are just, you know, straight up canceling. And um, you know, New Orleans is under a lot of is facing a lot of issues right now. You know, COVID is very rampant there and we're dealing with that. We just had a, you know, a pullback on some of the um, openings down here in Louisiana. And so we've been talking to the film festival and it's literally for them, it's day by day. It's, it's, they're talking to the you know, mayor and the the city council, but ultimately, they're the film festival is very low on the priority of the city officials right now. So, understandably so. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's um, going to be tough.
3: Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, Jake, I want to uh, then turn this to you because, uh, given what we were discussing and things you've done on your um, on, um, on for Bright Sun as well, mm-hmm. and and I think you. Uh, if I may say, a bit of a, maybe an outsider's perspective in terms of the film industry. Yeah, and, no, i definitely uh, say
0: that. <laughs> yeah,
3: and uh, I mean, I don't, it's, it's meant as a compliment. Uh, and then, um, and I think you've probably got an eye for innovation or certainly an eye for where um, certainly businesses have gotten things wrong. Mm-hmm. What do you, just generally, The I mean, do you see the film industry? Is it ripe for disruption, you think?
0: I don't, well, you know, you're seeing a shift right now with studios who are not even are choosing not even to do a theatrical run they're doing straight to to streaming which is the next big um the next big shift i guess you would say who knows if it's the future because we've been talking about doing all these streaming services for a while and now you see uh services like quibi which will be a great episode of a bankrupt one day (laughs) (laughs) um who are You know, it it launched with a billion dollars behind it. Uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg is, you know, the creator and it's not doing very well at all. That's what I hear, yeah. I think the newest Washington Post article came out with they have 72,000 active users on it or um, paid users on it right now, which is abysmal. So it's it's interesting um, to see who is going to survive and who isn't. Uh, you've seen like Go90, I remember Verizon, that was their version mm-hmm. of a streaming service back in 2011 or whatever. So Disney+, Plus, Netflix, uh, who knows if Peacock's going to do well, and the others, they're all seeming to get the market share. However, what about the other studios and what they're going to do? It, it's It's interesting to see whether or not movie theaters are even going to be around in the oh. next couple of years as well because they are hemorrhaging money at a... Horrifying rate and people who love going to theaters is It it may uh, it may boil down to uh, independent theaters at at one point in the next 10 years. So um, Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting to see where the industry is going and you would think right now uh, like you guys had mentioned that all these uh, companies and networks they would be buying up content right now, but in fact, there's there's still uh, pretty gung-ho on making their own original contents, which I I think is their way of uh, of trying to diversify their own streaming services. Disney Plus mm-hmm. is uh, very gung-ho about making their own content for their streaming services. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's going to be interesting to see where the industry shifts, especially after this because I think COVID is going to be uh, quite a pivotal moment in all of this. That's what's going to be
1: interesting, I think, going forward when we're talking about that shift, is that you know, everyone's going to want their own streaming service and everyone's going to want their own content. And then it's going to get to the point where, um, everything, I think there's going to be this war kind of like, uh, of all the streaming service. I mean, we're already seeing it, Mm. but I think it's going to get even worse where everyone is producing their own content for their own streaming service. And it's going to essentially be like, uh, you know, like, where everyone's paying for cable television all over again. Yeah, with exactly. All these different,
3: or even go different f-
1: streaming services. Yeah,
3: or even go further back. It's almost like the old uh, the broadcast networks, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's like yeah, you got right.
1: your your few main ones, and then that's yeah. it. Yeah,
0: you can. Oh, sorry, John. Go ahead.
1: No, I was just going to say, and it, it all, all it does is make it even harder for independent yeah. people. Yeah.
3: I think it's going to be. Very do you
0: guys know about Quibi? Have you guys uh, done your research on it? Yeah, well, we. Uh, so
3: the answer is no. I mean, in the sense of the proper research, we did. You know, we we heard about it. We knew it was coming out, mm-hmm. and so talking to people. Oh, well, here, you know, because we actually have some um, some shorts, um, and we're oh, well, maybe we can get the shorts onto Quibi. But then, you know, everything I've uh, haven't heard too many good things about Quibi. First of all, <laughs> I don't even know, I don't know how to approach them, and if you know, and I don't know who is allowed to approach them in terms of uh, you know I. I, I don't know. I don't really know how a lot of these. Uh, it kind of gets back to this thing you were saying, sort of business plans. I don't know what kind of business plans these these people are working with,
0: basically. Right. Yeah. If um, I mean, there's a there's a great Wall Street Journal uh, article about them that just came out. It's it is just fascinating what how they thought this was going to to work and how they thought it was going to succeed. It, uh, it's been a, a whole calamity so I think it'll be a good episode of <laughs> bankrupt one day for okay. me because it is uh, oh yeah
1: it's got, That's you know. it's, yeah absolutely
0: and you
3: said that was in the Wall Street Journal recently I'll go have a look so I, th- yeah, I think yeah I think it was Wall Street Journal that posted it, yeah I'm sure I can find it Yeah, no, I think it'd be very interesting I think it's the whole I mean it's a horrible situation we're all in obviously in the world's end and yeah. it's affecting a lot of people but uh, it is a very interesting time because of everything how things are gonna be changing
0: I think yeah, everything every single week there's something that uh, that is unprecedented that's ever happened especially John and I are both very young so it's like yeah. we're, we're growing up in this whole new era of, of everything it's like growing up through the the Spanish flu it's bizarre to see how everything is changing and uh, and it's yeah, got to be the, even you're to make a movie yeah
1: yeah and it's got to be even more bizarre for the two of you like witnessing what's happening in America but not being <laughs> here you know and seeing you know it's 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 a whole different perspective i'm sure i'm sure we everyone here looks a lot crazier uh actually i don't know i don't know that we look crazier than we are because things are pretty crazy down here
3: i think what has happened is a bit of a maybe some of the veneer of Mm -hmm. i mean i mean i live in europe and yeah it can be very frustrating because europeans have always got this view of the u.s which is a bit yeah yeah distorted and uh and and i think there's plenty of things to be critical about but they often criticize the wrong things i would say sometimes but uh but i think what is happening is you got a bit of the veneers been taken off and um absolutely in, in that sense the us is really not looking that much different than a lot of other other places i mean in that not necessarily in a good way if you know what i mean i mean you know mm-hmm. you've got uh, we've got riots in serbia and we've got things going on yeah. in other countries and and you know um those scenes in sort of the Midwest and people storm, you know, practically storming state houses in Ohio yeah. and Michigan and places like that. Um, but I think
0: that's what so know. many foreigners uh, get angry about is because the United States always, or at least citizens of it, always like to pra- uh, preach that they're better than every other country mm-hmm. or the best country in the world. But so then you see this these series of events that, like you said, uh, very much parallel other countries. Yeah, exactly. Countries.
3: <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's interesting. We had a uh, we had the guys from the we had there's a Baywatch documentary that's going to come out. And, oh, cool! Uh, huh. And we did a podcast on that a few weeks ago. And uh, so the guy uh, Jeremy Jackson, who was one of the actors on the show, was uh, there, and he's like, he he's talking about what it was like to go the to Europe in the 90s as a teenager with David mm-hmm. Hasselhoff, you know, and uh, <laughs> and he uh, picks a paints a very bleak picture of Europe that I think is a bit exaggerated. But he, even then, he turns around. And he goes, but now we realize that they were not as good as we thought and uh you know it's it, <laughs> sort of the uh, crows are coming home to roost I mean it's um, yeah <laughs> it is a crazy at 2020 is just absolutely one of the, it's got to be the maddest years craziest years that any it's of us be. no matter how old you are yeah uh, are gonna ever ever live through I would hope um but I mean it's from my own personal standpoint given when I grew up I mean I'm I realize now that stuff that was happening in the '80s and '90s, which relatively was so tame, that that yeah, those right. were the those were the exceptional decades. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because you hear about stuff happening in the '60s. Well, that's kind of stuff's happening again. You hear about stuff like swine flu in another era, and you hear about wars and things mm-hmm. like that. It just has just been. I mean, when I was home visiting my parents, and uh, I just turned to my dad, who's who's ninety actually, uh, who said, "I said, I realize." This is a crazy old world we live in, and I just there was just this time period that was a bit uh, we were living in a bit of a cloud cuckoo land, basically. I think, <laughs> not realizing that actually, it is just one crazy messed up world sometimes, and we're living in a, one of the craziest, most
0: messed up years that I can. Yeah, remember. absolutely. Yeah, it's my. My uh, my grandfather he uh, he passed away last year, but he was a hundred years old. So he was wow. born in nineteen nineteen, and I can only imagine if he lived through this year, it's yeah. got to be one of the weirdest years he <laughs> would have ever lived through. And yeah, he was born exactly. through both world wars. Yeah. yeah, So it's it's just bizarre. It's this year is crazy.
1: And yeah. I, I think that the uh, the everyone having social media and a phone and a camera has has only amplified it because I think that there have been events like this year in the past, but I think that they haven't been, it's like, you know, the pilot light has been lit, but then everybody having a phone and a camera and social media and constant updates on everything Mm -hmm. has been like the gas to the fire of every event that's happened in 2020. You know, even the pandemic of the spreading of information and misinformation mm-hmm. has been greatly, you know. Whereas, uh, you know, maybe back in the day, if if they told everyone to wear a mask, hey, wear yeah. a mask so you don't get sick. Yeah. Maybe back in the day, everyone would have listened. But now that yeah. there's such a widespread, exactly. Well, I, I was uh, having this
3: conversation. Yeah, I was having this conversation with my daughter, and I said, well, you know, I'm I'm one of these people. Maybe it's my age, but I like to think of someone who has, you know, it's right to be skeptical. But if I think if someone's got lots of degrees and done a lot of research and, mm-hmm. you know, and tests yes. and things like that. And they tell you they give you advice that uh, it would be Probably better listen. off wearing a mask or something then you you tend to listen to them. <laughs> but uh, these days, it's everyone's like either self-diagnosing or, yeah. or you know, I got on the phone and I just did these symptoms and I've obviously got mm-hmm. cancer or I've got and then... I don't even well,
0: think people go that far. I think that things. yeah,
3: exactly. Or yeah, they... And uh, I don't know, someone said, uh, I read this person, someone's on the on the internet saying that masks are, uh, you know, whatever, whatever it is. I mean, I never thought masks would become a political um, oh my God. football, you know.
1: Yeah, it's it's the ease that information and misinformation can now be spread is the reason that I think we're in the state that we're in, because I don't think that if... I don't think if misinformation had a way to spread I think that everybody would listen to yeah. doctors and listen to yeah. yeah you know people who have done research and are knowledgeable on the topic when they say hey ma- maybe a mask will help slow the spread of this disease yeah. I don't think it would be I think it'd be a non issue
0: Well yeah. I think I think people now nowadays they choose the facts that they want mm-hmm. uh, regardless of whether or not it's true but I think also there's a side of people who have just been so badgered down by what is true and what isn't. Mm-hmm. And, you know, all these people who don't trust anyone anymore. So it's like there's this severe mistrust among the citizens of, I, mean, I would assume it's only America. In the UK, is it, are people at the same level afraid to wear masks?
3: No, I think in the UK, <laughs> UK is a very unique, uh, well, every country is unique. And uh, yeah. but I think uh, the interesting thing that's been happening here, and the, you know, it all gets caught up in the politics. But uh, if I was to give the uh, current Prime Minister and the government some credit is that one thing that they have always been worried about was that if they inundated with people with think rules from the very beginning, that the typical British mindset would be, they would just kind of grow tired of it and kind of ignore it basically right. so so they, they so they they've they're phasing in next, so a lot of phasings things
0: happen a little uh-huh. more slowly
3: here mm-hmm. so uh they're phasing in masks in um in um uh, retail out you know if you go to a, a shop or a store or anything starting next Friday, you'll have to wear a mask. Well, why aren't
0: we having to Very wear a Very similar now? to how Canada is doing it. Yeah, Yeah,
3: I think, well, I think then there's where you see the similarities. Yeah, uh, I've right. been to Canada a few times myself. Um, um, I think it's, uh, so it, it's much more of a, you know, on the whole, much more of a, on the whole, I should add, uh, even keel sort of sort of society. Um, so, pe- but at the same time, um, you know, I think, uh, uh, Let's face it. It's summer. It's 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 Britain. Yeah, and uh, it's hot. It's hot. You know, it's finally warming up, and you only get five, ten good days a year, really. If you <laughs> think about it, For uh, y- you go. You're gonna want to go out. You know, you're gonna, and you know, and everyone be damned. I'm going out. I mean, yeah. uh, so. Um, but uh, I w- I will say that it's one of those places where uh, people like to keep their social distance in the UK generally. Naturally, exactly. I
0: think.
3: <laughs> <laughs> so so I think it's it, in that sense, it's, it's, it's actually worked out quite well. There's a, I mean, it's, it's just like one really long extended Christmas in some ways, and that you know, <laughs> we're <laughs> used <laughs> to taking our week off or whatever around Christmas time and just being holed up in our houses, and that's uh, right, and that's a lot of what's, what's happening, um, or has happened, um, but like you know, British mindset. Yeah, I, I, I drive I drive to the studio uh, every, uh, I'm about 45 minutes away from where I live. And uh, each time there's a little more, there's a few more cars on the road and yeah. uh, this sort of thing. So I think there's a, there's also a, also a realization that this can't, I mean, you have to be prudent, but this can't last forever. Yeah, right. You know, because then you think about what are the damn, you know, people are already talking about. Well, if the economy contracts by this much, what what are the health uh, um, consequences of that? Yeah, right. You know, with rising poverty, um, I mean, one thing about the National Health Service here is that immediately all not you know uh, elective surgeries were gone. I mean, uh, I had for one reason or another had to go into a hospital a few months ago, and it was almost like one of your um, films, but your your you know from Bright Sun Films. Uh, the place was absolutely empty. Really, you know, I was literally in an empty hospital, mm. uh, going to the one place I had to go to for a, for a blood test. But otherwise, it was and it was just eerie. Um, so you know, they've been able to do that. They're not worried about being overwhelmed yet or ever, maybe. Um, but I think people also realize people aren't going in to get tested for other things, and yeah, you know, right. it's, start, it's, start, it's going to start having an impact that way. So. Uh, in many ways, we're all we're all in this together. We're all flying blind, and um, you know, uh, I think you just have to make the best of a of of, of a the worst situation. Uh, yeah, you know, and uh, I think that's what people are trying to do. And uh, yeah, it sometimes does seem a little bit crazy back in, <laughs> yeah, it's back a, in the United States. It's not so, exactly
0: yeah. the best case scenario, especially in the United States. But
3: uh, yeah, and how this election, you know, not, and I'm not trying to get political, but I mean just just even the practicality of holding the election, how that's going to all work out, you know.
0: And that, of course, that's going to turn into a political issue as well.
3: Well, yeah. And I, there was a, on the car over here, on the radio, on the, uh, on the way over here, uh, some U.S. academic law professor talking about the uh, potential for lawsuits and how that could all play out in November. Yeah. Um, Yeah. you know, It's,
1: it's, it's been crazy here because I feel like, uh, You know, I feel like I'm living in a movie for the first part.
0: Uh, That's like living in Contagion. That's what it is. Literally. I finally
3: saw that the other day.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's scary. The the similarities are insane though, aren't they? It
3: it was, I watched it with my family and everyone's just, we're just, our jaws were dropping. I mean, it was just like, (laughs) I mean, it was absolutely, I mean, give Soderbergh a lot of credit and and everyone else who worked on that film. They nailed it they absolutely nailed it. I mean, I don't think we realized, I mean, I didn't see it when it came out in 2011. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, if we'd only known, I mean, uh, yeah. th- that should have been, everyone should have been made to watch that film as soon as this was all declared a pandemic.
0: Yeah, Yeah, I agree. I mean get yeah. granted the the virus in that film is a little little more deadly yeah. than they say in the film it's like 40% fatality rate. Yeah,
3: like it's it's okay. It's a film. It's 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 fiction. Uh, you know, you you know within a day or two that you've got it and you drop right. dead yeah. within a couple of days and it's yeah. You know, so there's these differences, but you know the the subtleties of how he's, the the, sh- the shots even how they always concentrated on someone's hand touching a railing or yeah, right, something yes. like yes. that. And, you know, and the this...
0: and misinformation in the film too where oh, they yeah. sort of yeah. They follow around the the gentleman who is is spreading his own like conspiracy theory. It's like yeah. it's it's insane. Yeah. Except as the president of the United States that's doing it this time. <laughs> exactly. And uh, you know what else is going to be
1: interesting? And I think this might be another Bright Sun Films video, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> depending on how things go. But uh, with Disney opening back up oh, uh, in oh, in Florida right now, yeah. um, we, you know things aren't good in louisiana and we are slowly trying to backtrace things but i know florida i think is the leading state right now yeah. in terms of 15, like their thousand
0: new cases yesterday
1: yeah, yeah and so I, I think uh you're gonna be having a video really soon about disney world and I, I'm, I'm surprised that because uh, i think in california they didn't open back up did they
0: yeah they decided not to yeah.
1: Which is that? It's interesting, and I guess I guess they probably make more money in um, in Florida.
0: I, I would advise they have so many people on payroll and all that. They're so desperate to open, but
3: yeah. yeah. Okay, well, um, I, I I think I said it, might have said it before, but I uh, have to do mean it this time. Unfortunately, our time's up, uh, guys. Uh, I just wanted to thank. Both of you, uh, Jake and John, for coming onto the podcast. It's been a joy having you. Uh, just to remind our listeners we're talking with we've been talking with Jake Williams, director, writer, and narrator, and uh, John Shaw, producer of "Closed for Storm," uh, which we hope to see uh, in very soon in the uh, near future. Um, look for them on um, we'll look for Bright Sun Films on YouTube. Um, Jake's one of Jake's uh, channels. And uh, I want to give a shout out to This Is Distorted uh, studios here in Leeds, England. And please remember to like us and share us with your friends and family wherever you happen to listen or watch podcasts. This is Factual America, signing off. You've been listening to Factual America. This podcast is produced by Almo Pictures, specializing in documentaries, television, and shorts about the USA for international audiences. Head on down to the show notes for more information about today's episode, our guests, and the team behind the podcast. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Alamo Pictures. Be the first to hear about new productions, festivals showing our films, and to connect with our team. Our homepage is alamopictures.co.uk.